This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this new podcast interview in the East Asian uh, Books Network, which is part of the New Books uh, Network. Uh, today, my guest is Ronald Loftus, uh, who is the author of The Turn Against the Modern, The Critical Essays of Tauka Reyum, which was published by the Association for Asian Studies in 2017. Yes, sir. Um, hello, Ronald. And hello, Roman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I would like to start uh, with a question about yourself, not yes. about the book, but about okay. yourself. Um, how did you become interested in the field of Japanese studies or Asian studies? Yes, that's in a way a surprisingly more difficult question than it should be. But uh, I grew up mostly out of the United States because of my father's work. So we spent, uh, when I was five years old, we went to India. Then we were in Europe for a few years. And then we finished up in uh, Bangkok, Thailand, where I graduated from high school. So I'd had this experience in third world countries and in Europe. And um, when I came back to go to college in the United States, I really didn't know what I was interested in. I kind of gravitated towards international politics and things. And I thought I could draw upon my experience on Southeast Asia. But I got advice, probably good advice, that you know, if one was going to specialize in Asian studies, it perhaps should be East Asia, uh, the, the the big countries of Japan and China. And at that time, the late 60s, China was not a place that you could actually go to. So my whole understanding of being an Asianist was that you go there and you immerse in the language and culture. So I picked Japan for those reasons. And um, so I was finishing a master's in international studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. And I had a course with a professor uh, who had been Edwin Reischauer's assistant when he was in the embassy here. And he got me very interested in Japan. It was the whole modernization thing. And so I then went to Claremont Graduate School and started studying Japanese history. And professor Peter Deuce came to be a professor there, and he was my mentor. And the rest is history, as we say. Okay. Um, what about, so you wrote this book uh, about Tao Kareyu, yes. who's a major period um, thinker, yes. philosopher. How did you meet? Yes. How did you find uh, Tao Kareyu? And how did you come up with this, uh, with the idea for this, for this book? Yes. Well, in a way, Roman, the book has been with me for a long time because it was definitely part of my dissertation project. So I came to Japan, and things in those days, this would be the early 70s, were a bit behind where we are today. My language preparation was not as high as young people today are able to. And so I was just starting out, struggling, and I people said, if you're interested in Meiji history, you, know, you have to read Irokawa Daikichi, Meiji Seishin, Meiji no Seishin, and Kano Masanao, his book called... Uh, the consciousness of order during the time of 
the founding of capitalism. So they were encyclopedic kind of works. Uh, Hirokawa was very much into the Jiu-Ninkyo-Nundo and into Kitamura Toko group, but he had a, about 10, 15 pages on Taokure. And Kano Masanao, in his very encyclopedic work, also had 10 or 15 pages on Taokure. And I learned from those books that um, Ienaga Saburo had written a little um, Iwanami Shinsho book that kind of sold for 50 yen at some point in the 50s. And it was called Suki Naru Shisoka no uh, Shogai Taokure no Shiso, whatever. No, so, so I read Yanaga's work. I got a chance to meet him, and I studied with Kano Sensei at Waseda University for a while. And then um, Nishina Masaru was a Hosei University literature person. So Kano, of course, was more like Shisoshi or intellectual history. And Nishida was a straight-up uh, literature uh, man, and but he ran a senior seminar at Hosei Dainaku on and he was the compiler of Taokurei Zenshu, the complete works. So I studied with Nishida Sensei. He, he was an excellent mentor. He pushed me really hard and taught me how you've got to you know push and dig for materials. Uh, and I was a bad student because I let him dig for the materials, but uh, I benefited very much from his work. He just finished volume six of Taokurei Zenshu. It was a projected eight volumes. He's been working on it for 50 years. He joked with me recently and said, I never thought it would take 50 years to complete this, complete works. But each time he puts out a volume, he goes through the writing so carefully. And usually there's a, you know, there are four or 500 pages and the hundred pages at the end is notes and explanatory things. So it's real deep scholarship. And, you know, I'm just coming in and taking advantage of the great work that he has done. And, He's been, he retired from Jose probably 10 or 15 years ago, but we've maintained contact and um, he lives in Chiba, Ken, um, and uh, Rayasuchi. He walked around with Rayasu stuffing mailboxes with Green Party leaflets and so He's a great eccentric sort of guy. He goes to China a lot. He loves, uh, he studies the, also the colonial literature that Japan produced in Manchuria and Taiwan and so forth. So he's a great scholar and friend. So between those uh, influences, Ienaga Saburo, Kano Masanao, Hirokawa Daikichi, and Nishida Masaru, I you know, sort of began my Taokurin, Kenkyu, my Taokurin studies. And, uh, you know, I realize now, since I've stayed with it now for almost 40 some years, that when I was younger, I just was not well enough equipped to appreciate what I was reading. And now I feel that's why I wanted to write this book, because now I feel like, yes, now I kind of get it. I get what he was doing. Um, there weren't the categories to help me in uh, 1972, 73, 74, um, to really understand what I was reading. And, you know, I kept thinking that I better understand what kind of category Taokurin belongs in. Was he a socialist? Was he a, you know, he didn't seem to be an avid Marxist, though he mentioned Marx uh, and he liked Engels. Uh, but I, I couldn't tell what slot he belonged into. And that, that sort of bothered me as, as a young scholar. I thought I better, I should understand this and I should be able to say he's this or he's that. But I realized as I got more mature that 
No, some people don't really resist categorization, and that's their beauty, that's their charm, and that's what we can learn from. Um, your your book is uh, you you say in the introduction that this is a biography yes. of Taoka Ren Taoka Ren yes but I had the feeling reading the book I had the feeling that it's so much more it's not I mean your perspective is the perspective of a historian yes um, but there's so much more in the book there's uh, you talk about philosophy yes. you talk about uh, modernity um, and a lot of different other um, topics yes. that, um, And my question is, in, in, in the introduction, you mentioned uh, Berman. Uh, yes. There's a, if I may Marshall quote. Berman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you talk about, uh, so you quote from Berman, you say, to become modern is to find ourselves in an environment that promises us adventure, power, joy, growth, transformation of ourselves and the world, and at the same time, that threatens to destroy everything we have, everything we know, everything we are. And then you say that this is... Uh, this um, quote from uh, Berman's perspective yes. is like a lens yes. uh, for you through yes. which uh, you try to under better understand yes. and grasp yes. uh, what was happening in major Japan. Yeah, I think so. Thank you for noticing that. And uh, the way I work, so like, yes, if I'm going to write about someone who was so-called anti-modern, Han Kindai Shugisha, that's how you know, Inara labeled And actually, Kano and Hirokawa also, they considered him at least anti-bunmei, if not anti-modern. So I thought, well, what is becoming modern? What is modernism? What is modernity? And you, again, the literature was not rich. It, it didn't exist in the early 70s. And when I began working on this book, I didn't find it extensive. But a critic like Marshall Berman, yes, I think I felt like Talkerayan would understand very well. He felt, I think, very deeply that things were tumultuous in his day, that things were whirling around him and other people couldn't see it, and that he was concerned about it. Sometimes his stance as a writer was to be very shrill, very uh, tough, but very, they call him sududoi in Japanese, very penetrating and probably annoying to his readers because he was very passionate about Chinese philosophy in ancient China when he went to uh, Tokyo Bunkadainaku, the predecessor of Tokyo um, Imperial University. He went to the Chinese Studies Department and he immersed in Chinese studies and he loved Lao Tzu and Chuanzu and Yi Jing and so forth. So his writing style, you know, it's Meiji Japanese, but it's also very cinefied. You know, he loves kanji characters that aren't the ones that we see every day. And that's why that was a real struggle for me. Uh, when I started reading him, I was too young to really know what was going on. And um, so I think that he, he could be um, this kind of, he had this aggravated stance, this unhappy position. I included that picture, you know, where he looks like he's pissed off at the world. And so, yeah, I think he understood that, you know, there is much, so much promise in modernity, but it, it is also taking away with the other hand what it's offering with one hand. And uh, that really bothered him. And he kept trying to say, pay attention to this to you know, his fellow Japanese, but in the 1895, you know, until his death in 1912, there wasn't a great many Japanese who wanted to hear what he had to say. You, you're actually talking the book about the fact that 
at the time, most of the intellectuals, um, they, they were reading the new Western canon. Yes. Um, the fundamental texts. And at the same time, um, Rayun was, he became an Asianist. Right. And you mentioned how he uh, starts to reread uh, John Zhu and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, why did that happen? Is that um, a paradox in a way? Is he part of um, a larger group of people who, who did that? I think he, he had some friends who, who did that. Most of them were, I think, much more conservative than he was. So there was some people who turned to ancient Chinese thought because they thought it really substantiated a kind of imperial model or imperial bureaucratic state, a strong central government. Um, but I think Tao Kodain, he was much more towards the, uh, the Taoist side of the, the sort of the free independent thinker who wasn't tied to systems. He always said that thing about, I don't like isms, you know, this should be or that should be. No, I don't care for that. And am I a socialist? He said, well, I've always felt great sympathy, you know, with the downtrodden and the poor. And he wrote about the people who were, you know, living in tenement housing, the early industrial proletariat, and sympathized with them. And, you know, he was making his living as a literary critic in the early, in the, right after the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95. So I think what he did was, I mean, he could have been like a philosopher or something else, but he was getting paid to read literature and think about it. So he was trying to get a group of writers to pay attention to uh, the situation of the poor in Meiji Japan. This is the issue that you should get into. And you should write novels that are passionate and full of ideals that show that life doesn't have to be like it's turning out in Meiji Japan. So he tried to push writers like Hirotsu Yudo and others to Let's make this problem the stuff of our fiction, the stuff of our novels. And he seemed to want to have a Japanese writer who was the equivalent of Victor Hugo in France, someone who would you know, rally people to causes of what we call social justice today, you know, in a broad sense. But uh, at the same time, uh, so he did become an Asians, yes. Um, but at the same time, he was well versed, well read uh, in Western thought as well. Exactly. Uh, there's a, a whole chapter in uh, in your book dedicated to uh, Schopenhauer right. and right. Uh, Rain's reading of uh, of Schopenhauer. Right. And he wrote that piece. Um, it's a long title. Sounds better in Japanese. Uh, I think it's Juku Seiki ni Okeru. Toyo no Shiso. No, it must be Seiyo no Jukyu Seki ni Okero Toyo no Shiso. So, like, the state of in contemporary Europe, what they're saying and thinking about traditional Asian thought. And he was, again, I think, like you say, he, he was supposedly anti modern. He never, no one ever called him anti Western, but, you know, presumably he's more interested in. Asian thought, so you think, okay, he's not well-read in Western thought, but not at all. He did his homework, and in that essay, he ran through all these people, which when I first read that essay in the early 70s, I didn't know who uh, uh, 
Ankitil Gupenol was, uh, and I didn't know who all these people were, the Royal Asiatic Society, Madame Blavatsky, and the Theosophists. Um, maybe I'd heard of her, but, you know, and, and just one by one, I went from reading, trying to decipher katakana names, and this is back in the days before computers, before Google or anything, so who the hell are we talking about here? Only to find that every person he mentioned then turned out to be listed up like in Ramon Schwab's La Renaissance Oriental or Edward Said's Orientalism. I mean, they were they were people, and they were they were significant people. And I, I didn't know anything about them, and it impressed me that in the eighteen nineties he had found these people. So yes, he was pretty widely read in Western thought, and uh, he you know he did. I'm sure choose his, his areas where he was more comfortable. Although he had in his personal life a rather unsatisfactory relationships with women. Uh, and he was never able to have a family. Uh, he was very interested in the cause of women's liberation and feminism. He you know, read stuff in that area. So he's a paradoxical figure and he always just made me think and made me work hard to, to try to follow the, the trail of his thought. And he never led me any place that wasn't really fascinating. For example, the Schopenhauer material. I mean, I confess, I Schopenhauer was, I think, in the 50s and 60s, the United States education system. He was just a name that was brought up and dismissed as a pessimist. When I first ran across him in Raven's work, I think I was I was here. I went to the Diet Library, looked up Schopenhauer. There were like two or three books on Schopenhauer, all written in the 1930s, and all just short, dismissing him as you know, a pessimist. Well, come to find, you know, I read his uh, The World as Will and Representation and found out that this 1968 translation was a newer one than the old one, which was... Uh, Paul Day and Kemp, which was the world as will and idea, and um, or maybe was it idea and representation? No, I think it was will and idea. And so they realized that representation was a better English equivalent of the German than idea was. And, and then ever since that time, Schopenhauer has come in for more and more scrutiny in the, you know in Western academic studies. So that. In my bibliography, there's got to be 25 or 30 books on Schopenhauer. When I started, there was like three or four, and they were not very interesting. And now people, and there's a group in England that, uh, that you know, the Cambridge um, Press put out a new translation of um, The World is Will and Representation, and they have a long explanation about the former translator was this E-G-E-J-F, Pain or something like that. Everybody agrees he does a great job, but he was not an academic. He was a career military man. And so they thought, well, maybe it's time for academic philosophers to try to wade into the Schopenhauer waters. And so I don't know that their translation is significantly different than Pain's, but it's just interesting that you know, he's coming in for that much more attention. And uh, scholars, there's any number of books and I think University of Hawaii put out some of these ones that deal with the Eastern Western uh, thing. And I, I think I say in the in the book that um, one of the things this turn of the, against the modern is about is how ideas flow across from one culture to another and how they're interpreted and how they're read and um, because these ideas 
about Chinese philosophy were coming in in fragments and fits and starts when Schopenhauer was, you know, younger when he, in the early 16, I mean, 1800s. Um, and it was just, you know, they, as far as they understood, Buddhism was a religion of somebody called Fo. And uh, they didn't, that's all they knew. And, uh, but when Schopenhauer ran across this idea that of Maya, that everything that we see, what he calls representation, is simply that. It's the creation of the mind, which he took from Kant. But, you know, it always seemed to me, and I'm not a philosopher, you are, but that Kant, you know, came up with that the thing in itself, the Ding An Sik. But he didn't know where to go from there about it. And Schopenhauer seemed to say, oh, there's a place to go, and you have to go inside to find that. And he maintained that um, you know, he himself was no saint or no religious person, but that he could philosophically work out this problem that there had to be a root to understand something deeper. He called that the will. And uh, through understanding it, you could quiet the will. And, therefore transcend. And, uh, you know, he apparently used to keep a statue of the Buddha uh, and a statue of a bust of Plato. And those two were in his room and always referred to them. Uh, so I, you know, I, I respect him a lot more than I did when I started, um, uh, that he was a genuine, you know, open to ideas uh, from any time, any place. Okay. Um, it's probably a bit late, but it's never too late no. um, to talk about the structure of okay. the book, yeah. the chapters of the book, because we mentioned the Schopenhauer mm -hmm. chapter. Mm -hmm. If you could tell us a few things about how the book is structured. Okay. Um, well, as you said, I, I, I tried to make it a, a biography, I guess an intellectual biography, but I, I found that, that it was hard to um, do it strictly chronologically um, because of just the way... Calgary's thoughts seem to evolve. So I, but I did roughly, I think, structure it chronologically. But, you know, his big moments, I guess, were times when he was in Tokyo in the Bundan, you know, trying to, you know, be in the world of ideas and to, and to have little journals and magazines that he was either the leading writer for or the editor for. The challenge was they weren't very economically you know, viable. So he's, he wound up living an existence of, you know, pretty much hand to mouth. And a couple of times in his career, he left Japan and went to China where he could be employed as a Japanese language teacher and also um, continue to read his, his Chinese uh, thought and philosophy. And he had actually some students that, you know, came to him and studied with him when he was in China. So he, you know, he, I see him as this uh, person who is representative of something in Meiji times, and that would be someone who had a pretty much a rough time of it. He stuck with what he believed in, but he was not um, you know, rewarded for it. So I have a chapter that, you know, in a way, the story starts with his, uh, after he got out of college, he was asked to edit this uh, new magazine called Seinenbun, or Youth, Literary Youth. And that's when he took that position of saying writers should pay attention to the poor and the downtrodden and the new industrial working class and what's happening with them. He drew upon people like Yokoyama Genosuke uh, and so forth and Matsubara Iwagoro and brought their works into his articles. 
But after, uh, so he had these moments in, in the center of the literary world. They didn't last long. Um, he was not influential. Um, and so I conclude that chapter on, on uh, Seinenburn with the fact that Takayama Chogyu kind of came to Tokyo just as Taokurein was heading out the door to China. And he became, he became what probably Taokurein would have liked to have been. He was writing for Taiyo magazine, what, Kano Masanao calls a sogo zashi, you know, comprehensive, lush-looking, beautiful photographs. And many consider Takayama Chogi's writing to be exemplary, you know, beautiful Japanese. And, and of course, he's a very, very much in favor of the state and, and the traditional, you know, very conservative. And Takayama, you know, he did, he actually wrote this stuff about, you know, social novels. Are you kidding me? Anybody who cares about social novels, an idiot, you know, things like that. So complete opposite of Talbotian. But there you have it. Talbotian was out the door going to China and Takayama Chogu is, you know, what would we say? It's his moment in the sun. He was the big hero figure. So it had to be discouraging, you know, um, but he, Talbotian kept banging on it. And when he came back, um, he actually went back to China uh, with the uh, Japanese troops when they went for the Boxer Rebellion. He was what we'd call an embedded reporter, uh, although the military didn't like the things that he wrote about it. So he, I think his stint there was cut short. But uh, when he came back, he, he edited his own little journal called Tenko, or Heaven's Drum, which is where he started publishing all this stuff about uh, what he thought needed to be uh, the bunmei, the whole concept of Western civilization needed to be not just deconstructed, but attacked. And, and uh, this is where he got kind of shrill and his his language, you know, probably won't impress uh, some readers, but he's like saying, you know, this bunmei stuff is way overrated. You know, it's, it's really shallow. It, it has no substance. It doesn't go deep. It forces us to think only on the surface and it makes us think about utilitarian things and doesn't understand where, you know, what real human experience can be. It's too narrow. And so we just hammered away on that theme, um, probably, and that was right around 1905, 1906, 1907. Probably not a big audience for that, that line, although he, you know, he did write articles about the, um, Furukawa Ichiban and the uh, Ashino mine pollution disaster. And he was, of course, he was good friends with Kotoku Shusui. Kotoku Shusui had helped Tanaka Shozo draft that petition that he tried to give to the Meiji emperor and was you know, thrown in jail for. Um, so he still had a, you know, always willing to stand up for what he thought was injustice. Um, but he just kept, you know, trying to push his ideas and his readers to say, you know, why are we so obsessed with getting Bunmei and Bunmei Kaika? So kind of we get, you know, to the end of Taokurin's story, and, and sadly he died very young. He didn't even reach age 41. Um, but, um, you know, he, that was 10 years after Fukuzawa Yukichi had died, and I appreciated what the, uh, Basically, environmental historian Brett Walker wrote in his book about called the Toxic Archipelago, the saying, you know, when we get, you know, to the end of the Ashio mine incident, you know, you look back and you realize that someone like Fukuzawa Yukichi 
relatively looks like an idiot, you know, compared to people who he didn't mention Tal Green, but someone like Tal Green or anybody else, Kinoshita Naoe, you know, who is calling out you know, the society and the government for um, letting this kind of industrial pollution destroy the land, destroy the people. And uh, so, you know, as you know, Fukuzawa Yukichi remains revered in Japan today. He's on the Ichiman Yen note and Takurei relatively ignored. But, you know, if you want to say who was right, I think Takurei was right. It's my opinion. <laughs> That's why I love the guy, because I learned, I learned so much from him. I have to confess that before reading your book, I didn't really know right. um, about uh, Dalka Dane. And when I saw the title, um, The Turn Against uh, Modernity, mm-hmm. uh, I was a bit puzzled <laughs> and intrigued. So yeah. uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, I wanted to read the book and uh, to talk to you about it. Good. And um, my feeling was um, that even though the, the, the title of the book is The, um, the Turn Against um, Modernity, and uh, you just talked about how they criticizes um, modernity and industrialization uh, as being superficial and flawed and lacking in depth and so on and so forth. Um, but my feeling was that um, while he, he does criticize um, modernity or civilization and so on and so forth. Um, what he also does is to suggest that um, the Western understanding of modernity, the Western understanding of civilization is probably not the only one oh, that we should look uh, elsewhere as well. Yeah. We should look uh, for uh, clues and hints in China and Japan and so on. Right? Am I I correct in my understanding? Yes, I believe you are. And and he wrote a lot about how it should be the new world civilization through a fusion of the best of East and West. And I think he believed in that. And what, again, startled me, I don't think I could appreciate it um, well when I first started reading him, but when he uh, really got beyond the world of nation states and started talking and thinking in transnational terms and thinking that the world needs to move uh, you know, beyond where it is and it needs to think about you know, sort of independent, autonomous communities where individuals can like, live free. And I think it, you know, it's somewhere in the back of his mind, he probably thought of the, the ancient Chinese Taoist sage community as, as kind of a model, but you know, we can't be fooled into thinking he wasn't aware of what modern life was like. I mean, he, he lived in Shanghai for a year and he, he loved being in Shanghai. He, he loved the um, variety of racial and ethnic groups that he saw there. But, and I think to his credit, he, he saw that the future of the world is not going to be centered around nation states. You know, we have to move beyond that and uh, believe that autonomous individuals need to be the basis for a new kind of global transnational order. And you know, I, think, I think I didn't really come to appreciate that until I was, you know, working on this book when I first was reading it. That was just, you know, beyond quite what I could comprehend. Um, and I really, you know, and, and perhaps, you know, the fact that other literature, you know, we weren't talking about transnational history and Western historiography back in the 70s, and now it's something that's you know, everyone is talking about. 
So I'm looking, oh my gosh, Solus Taukodin, calling our attention to it. So I, I see him as, as a courageous person, you know, someone who, who uh, didn't, uh, was willing, I guess you could say, to sacrifice a, a comfortable life uh, for a rather challenging life as a, as a renegade intellectual. And, you know, the idea of giving himself over to working for these small journals that had little chance of you know, making anybody any money uh, usually depended on some you know, patron to you know, give them some capital to start up. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a tough life. He could have chosen other things. He had a couple of brothers who were worked for big companies like Mitsui and Mitsubishi and so forth. And they helped him out financially, but, um, you know, he, intellectually, I think he was worlds apart from them and he wasn't going to compromise uh, what he believed in. For that, I give him credit. Another topic mm -hmm. that you, you talk about, you discuss in your book, uh, is the subject of modernity. Yes. yes. Uh, the notion of the self yes. um, that um, being proposed or yes. uh, yes. suggested. Yes. Um, and you also mention the fact that this is a topic that's, um, that there's this line of thought that uh, We cannot really talk about uh, the notion of self in, in Japan because of um, this idea of um, everything's group, and, yeah, yeah, the collective, the group-oriented um, culture. What uh, what is Rain's, uh, What is the subject of modernity in his in his vision? What is the self in his vision? Well, I think it's a very complicated question. I think he had a lot of it, uh, got a lot of it from um, his reading of Schopenhauer, who you know talked a lot about the the self and how how we operate human beings as kind of a system that perceives things and we take in these inputs from the environment and then you know, this is kind of sounds like the Buddha's teaching as well and then it pushes us into these directions with all these desires to consume you know and to achieve and to gain material happiness and then the, the Buddha's teaching was that you know that will never get you anywhere and uh, you know I love the, the line I think there's a documentary film that everyone talks about in the life of the Buddha where they use as the title a quote that he had remember me as someone who woke up and uh, I think you know I feel like Tao Kuen was trying to beat this drum that's heaven's drum was that title of his journal where he was at his most shrill trying to ring a bell trying to wake up his fellow Japanese and say it all You can't do anything until you start coming to terms with your individual self. And that means you have to be able to, you know, to look inside. So we talk a lot about subjectivity. And uh, I think he was, in his own way, guided mostly by Schopenhauer. Like many Japanese, he did a little Zazen practice. He said it wasn't really for him. But, you know, if you don't spend some time with your focus on the inner self, then not really part of the larger concerns of the universe and uh, so I think for him he maybe rooted his understanding of individual and of subjectivity and of human freedom and human experience in this idea that that's what we're here for we're you know we're only given what we're given which is this body and this mind if we don't use that to investigate ourselves then we probably will never learn anything or never go anywhere and that seems like also very contemporary you know modern 
psychology and so forth seems to you know confirm that that, uh, that perception. So again, I think he was in many ways he he kind of was a forerunner of the new age you know movement. Um, I mentioned that you know not only Laozi and Zhuangzi, but he was quite a fan of the I Ching, you know, the Book of Changes, and uh, that's another area where people are, I think coming to greater and greater appreciation of that book as a, as a book of wisdom. Um, and uh, so the sub, getting around back to the individual, individual subjectivity and what you said, yes, it's, it's people want to say that in Japan it's very difficult for individualism to thrive. But and I, I pondered it maybe because he was from Tosa, he was from Kochi, and Kotoku is from the Shusu is from the same area. But they grew up at the peak of the popular rights movement, the Jiyomingyamindo, and they, they were all about freedom and individuality. And so that's why I think I kind of end the book up with some references to Maruyama Masao and the post-war debate on subjectivity. And as I understand that, they, many critics, you know, right after the war, they wanted to know why didn't Japanese do a better job of standing up to the state in the 1930s and saying no, you know, to overseas adventurism, you know, no to imperialism. And many concluded that their sense of uh, self, subjectivity, just wasn't developed enough. Shu Tai say that that translate that as subjectivity. But I think Mariyama saw in you know Taukurim and maybe Tokutomi Doka and a few other people, Ishikawa Sanshiro, some of that no, they had some of that subjectivity and they had some of the of the guts that it took to, to look and to learn and to study and to keep keep themselves focused on something that was, you know, other than their own material improvement. And, uh, I feel like so I feel like, yeah, I mean, Mariyama did recognize Taupriya, but I feel like, yeah, he's a, he's a good case in point that well before the 1930s, he was trying to point his fellow Japanese in the direction of, you know, don't look the other way when it comes to the inner self. Don't be afraid of it. you got to deal with it. Why was the self so important to him? This is actually one of the questions that you yourself, you ask in the, in the introduction. And I, that's a tough one to answer. He does, uh, one thing we haven't talked about, I mean, it, it does affect your question about the structure of the book, which I didn't really answer very well, but he did write an autobiography um, when he was dying. He knew he was dying of spinal meningitis. He serialized it in Chuo Koron uh, in the day. So that was his, maybe his moment in the sun. And uh, after he finished writing it, he was still alive, and so he started publishing supplements to it and until really to the day he died. Um, and uh, so it was hard not to, as I wrote, to think about his his own memoir, his own thought about himself. And he talked about um, some days when he uh, his education. He had a very fragmented education. He really wanted to go to the what was called, I think, the Kochi Kyoritsu Gakko. It was the school run by the Jiyomingyamundo, the popular rights movement, where they could study mill and lock in English and, and uh, really get into what we would call um, hu uh, human rights, uh, what's the natural 
breaths. And, and, uh, but then for some reason, he decided to leave that school and to go to a middle school in Osaka. And while there, Mori Arinori became the minister of education. And he immediately started having the young students do military drills every day. And Tom Graham was like, what? That's not why I came here. And so he had a, he, he rebelled against the system and, and his, his fellow students encouraged him. They didn't have as much courage. He kept getting punished for, you know, bad behavior. And so he developed kind of like probably an ulcer and high tension. And so he had to withdraw, like many Japanese intellectuals do. He had to withdraw and spend some time at home, in bed, and, and, uh, and even in the hospital. While he was doing that, he said he went through a period where he actually had out-of-body experiences and he could, he could look down and see the self and he could see what he was and who he was. And then the night he came home from the hospital, his father, with whom he got, you know, a very loving family, I guess, and he loved his father. And his father had a stroke and died almost immediately. So these were heavy times for him. And again, he, he said he, you know, he went deep in, he became, you know, depressed and, uh, and he had to fight his way out of that. And it's when he realized that, yes, he had to get sort of back in the game that he wanted to find a way to resume his education. So he, he went to Tokyo and joined a school of uh, fisheries of all things, which was a vocational school. He said, I didn't know anything about, you know, fish or anything, but he was a smart young man and he could get excellent scores on all the written work. He said he didn't do very well when they were like raising fish in the hatcheries that he didn't want to do. But that completing that program became a stepping stone to go to uh, Tokyo Bunka Daigaku, where he could get into a Chinese studies program because they were certifying um, student, uh, young people to teach basically would be middle school ethics in the form of Confucian teachings. Um, but I'm, I did a little digging around on what the curriculum was, and clearly he went way beyond the curriculum of what it took to get certified because they didn't want people reading necessarily Lao Tzu and Chuang the Book of Changes, but he was all into that. And then he, you know, he, ne he had one brief experience where he tried teaching ethics to, to middle school kids, but that wasn't his thing either. So um, I think that experience of illness and it kind of, he, he wrote about it. And, and I think when he you know, read Schopenhauer, then he could understand a little more what, what Schopenhauer was saying about there's really like, there's two parts to the human self. You know, one part is all conditioned by the environment, but there's another part that can be found and uh, discovered. And I think Topping and Phil, I've already got a glimpse of that. Interestingly to me, Roman, throughout his life, he always wrote that he was never religious or spiritual, you know, tried a little Zen and uh, he talked, he talked, wrote about the Bible and Jesus and the gospel. So he knew this stuff, knew a little bit about Islam, but he claimed none of these things were anything that you know, convinced him to become a religious person. But in some of his writings, he took on people uh, who did write in that area and would, would have Rome Solo's arguments with them. 
But I got the feeling from from your book that uh, he was a very compassionate yes. um, human being, yes. Yes. and um, you write about his criticism of uh, the Western scientific view of, yes. of reality, yeah. uh, which in his uh, in his view lacked um, depth and comprehensiveness. And he actually talks about um, how this Western scientific view. Uh, It basically has no ideals, and right. as such, uh, it has no capacity to care for the fate of fellow human beings. So, he, uh, in a way, he argued for this empathy towards yes. other yes. human beings. And he, you know, the con the word he used in Japanese was dojo, which was obviously rooted in um, Schopenhauer's notion of. Mitleid, or it, again, it was often translated as sympathy, but I found compassion or empathy was a much better word. Dojo, of course, in Japanese means same feelings, you know, feelings aligned, um, but that, that would, two people, when one person can align their feelings with another, um, then they can have empathy and understand a fellow human being. So, yeah, he took, he was by, very moved by that concept in Schopenhauer of Mitleid, of, of uh, compassion, compassion and understanding. And that's what he wanted writers to have. And I think and, and it was very Confucian as well, right? Because if you were Confucianist and you believed in run, uh, then that's compassionate understanding of other human beings. And you know, Confucius's point of departure was you can't do anything or be anything in this world if you don't start there and uh, I think Tom Brennan were though not a Confucianist I think he, you know, he was very open to that idea and he would link Confucians run and you know Jesus's eye Jesus's love you know and and, uh, and, say, and Schopenhauer's you know Mikley these are all related concepts when you consider that in a way he wasn't highly educated His education was fragmented. Yes, he wound up at one of the best universities in Japan, major Japan, but he was in a sidetrack into a minor program. I think nobody took the people in his department of Chinese studies terribly seriously. Everybody wanted to study Western stuff and Western philosophy, but you could make that argument that, no, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater And we haven't mentioned um, Indian philosophy, but he also talked about the Vedas and the Upanishads quite a bit, and who see the whole network. I mean, the Vedas and Upanishads come for another four or five hundred years before Chinese philosophy. But you know, he's saying, you got you to study it all. It's, they knew things. They knew things back then. And we seem to have forgotten them. He wanted his readers to go back. Which, since he was addressing audiences which are trying to get the latest technology and, you know, and get that under control and learn techniques for achieving this or that, um, probably nobody cared much what Talbot said. But I think if we look back at him now, and I think we marvel at, wow, he actually was really on those things. And proof is that he was willing to do whatever he had to do to keep his practice alive, to keep reading, keep studying. And that's why I think his his memoir or his autobiography um, was probably compelling to readers because 
There he was dying. He had lost the use of his legs and he was still working, still fighting, still struggling uh, to understand the self, understand the times in which he lived. And uh, didn't uh, say exactly what Marshall Berman said. I think he, he would have been completely understood that whole line of modernity places us, catapults us into this crazy environment where we, at the one hand, we see all this promise and power and energy. We could do anything at the same time. Oh, it could all fall apart on us as well. Since again, he's writing this before weapons of mass destruction and so forth, it's still rather prophetic in a certain way. Uh, since you mentioned um, the self yes. again, um, did I? Did yes. I really? <laughs> <laughs> and modernity. <laughs> um, the last chapter mm-hmm. of your book uh, is called "Last Thoughts on Defending the the Modern Self." Mm-hmm. Um, and my question was, in the end, for Leyun, uh, what did becoming modern mean for him? If he criticizes right. um, the Western paradigm, right? I think he's saying that in alone is is not enough. And I quoted, you know, some articles where he would write very approvingly and excitedly about um, modern ideas and modern technologies. And you know, he was not alone, but people in the nineteenth century and early twentieth century thought things like animal magnetism, you know, might be very helpful. You know, using magnets, you know, to to heal, you know, ill people, and uh, he thought that hypnotism might be a way for individual subjects to sort of turn off that focus on the, all the stimuli that come in and distract us from what's really real. Um, he thought maybe that would be a great tool. So he got all caught up in modern things as as well. He wasn't a fool. But he want, he wasn't willing to accept these things uncritically. He wanted to say, what do they lack, though? What are they missing? Um, and I mentioned way in the beginning how, as a graduate student in the United States in the late 60s and early 70s, in Asian studies, we couldn't um, fail to uh, you know be aware of Joseph Levinson's work at Berkeley. Um, he died tragically in a boating accident in the prime of his career, but he had written the Confucian, his trilogy about Confucianism and its modern fate in China. And then he wrote that little book about Liang Chi Chao and the mind of modern China. And I, I couldn't help feeling as though, you know, it took Liang Chi Chao in China until World War One to get where Rain had already gotten in the 1890s, which was, there's, you know, there's a lot of cool things about 19th century Western civilization, but it's not the end all to everything because it comes up short. You know, it's strong on materialism and, and wealth and power. It's what the Chinese were so interested in, but you know, it'll it'll sell you down the river. You know, you have to sell your soul and you're going to lose that sort of holistic perspective on the human experience and the whole world will be shallower and less, less beautiful. You know, and Liang Chichao came to understand that after you know, struggling mightily um, with a lot of those questions about becoming modern. 
So I, I guess I don't know for sure, you know, what becoming modern means. Uh, I think there, I think I wrote somewhere, there was, there's a consensus that we kind of all agree with that, you know, the industrial revolution is a big part of it. Before the industrial revolution, um, you know, the world was one kind of place, but after, you know, the internal combustion engine and, and all these factories, uh, becoming powered by inanimate energy, enabling large numbers of workers to congregate, but then they live a life um, where they are their work is routinized and uh, they only do one task. Um, yeah, we haven't talked about um, Edward Carpenter, who was a big influence on Japan or on Tankodayun, because he had written this notion that uh, the civilization is a kind of a disease that humanity has to pass through. They have to sink down and have another fall, I guess, like Adam and Eve, and then come out of it and realize that. You know, he was kind of an original hippie. He was also a, a, a an out of the closet homosexual, and uh, he wrote about uh, you know, gender relations and same sex love, and he probed into the nature of that. And uh, he was, uh, you know, I mean, Tankoden read his writings, and I think he felt like, ah, oh, you know, I've got a soulmate here in, uh, in Edward Carpenter, who understood that. Uh, Civilization, the direction it's taking us is, is not a good end point for human beings. So I think we, you know, people agree that the, you know, modernization does mean urbanization, industrialization. Uh, it means the spread of uh, popular movements, ideas about individual freedoms and subjectivity. Um, but, you know, even today, you know, who's modern? Who's not modern? You know, I don't know that we, we fully understand that, but definitely there is a process, and uh, you know, we can say now in 2018 that um, it's a universal experience. So everybody around the world, no one can now escape from modernity. And, and the countries in Asia in the 19th century, they didn't have a choice because modernity was forced upon them by Western imperialism. Um, and most of these, most of the late developing societies didn't have a choice, really, one way or the other. Trade, contact with the West, extraction of you know resources from Africa, Latin America, and then the realization of well, if we don't figure out how to do some of this stuff ourselves, we're always just going to be being taken advantage of. So societies you know, felt we must come to uh, to deal with. You. The modern and uh, some so for most places it probably involves a mixture of things that they want to preserve from their own traditions and culture and adaptations that they need to make in order to survive in this cruel multicultural trans historical global world. You know. Environmentalism comes in a bit too here in a way. And Talcudin actually had a couple of essays where he was also prescient about that. But you know, pollution uh, doesn't know national boundaries. You know, um, you know, one of the reasons I think Japan is looks better today, the sky and everything, to me than it did in the 1970s is well, a lot of the factories uh, have moved to China, but now the wind blows the acid rains back, you know, from China to Japan and they're like, oh no, that's terrible. but you can't you can't just put up walls and stop that. So somehow I think 
how could anyone as a young person in the 1890s and early 1900s, he was able to somehow intuit that, wow, this thing about becoming modern is a lot more to it than just rushing in and, and reading a few uh, Western philosophers and finding out new strategies for business and economics and reorganizing government that there's more at stake and does have to do with, like you say, how can you be fully realized human beings with the right kind of intellectual, emotional configuration that enables us to live in the world and move fully and get the most out of our lives. If, if you want your readers uh, to take one thing from, you, from your book, what would that be? Well, I think... It's a tough question, but I, I think, you know, to think about, read, you know, read for yourself and Talbot wouldn't want anything less. Read for yourself and see what you think and see what you can take from that. What does he teach us? What does he tell us about the modern experience and the human experience on this planet in this time? Uh, his, his time was late 19th, early 20th century. We're now in the 21st century. Um, does anything that he has to say have meaning for us today? And if so, you know, what is it? Um, you know, some things he, he highlighted, projects he wanted to do if he could have lived longer. And, um, you know, one of them was to, to dig more into um, the question of gender relations and, and the liberation of women and the equality between the sexes. And the other was he wanted to do a thoroughgoing translation of Schopenhauer into Japanese. He said, I may not be the guy to do this because I'm not really a philosopher, but um, he would work on it if he had time and because he felt like, you know, this was often the case in Meiji Japan, fragmentary translations were made and summaries were made, but he wanted to actually go into the world as will and representation, translate the whole thing into Japanese. Uh, that kind of dedication, that kind of uh, willingness to, you know, put the time and effort into it. So I'd, I'd like, you know, I guess I'd like ordinary people who might read this book to think about what, what Tao Kurein has to say. I'd like my students to understand that um, scholarship is hard work and, you know, you have to roll up your sleeves and get in there, get into those archives and dig in. And I mean, it took me, whatever it is, 45 years, you know, to to bring this study to completion. Now, I had a nice, wonderful holiday in the sense that after reading uh, Talcarin's writings as best I could, and particularly reading his uh, memoir, his autobiography, I went off to studying autobiography in general. And I, I did two books on uh, women's writing in the modern period, one pre-war, one post-war. And uh, you know, in a way, each one of those women that I read and I translated some of the portions of their memoirs. It was a mini version of what I was doing with Tao Kuren in the sense that I had to learn so many new things to understand their lives and their times, talking about 1920s and 30s and then in the post-war years, that I felt like, just like I feel like Tao Kuren was kind of a teacher to me, I feel like all these women that I uh, read, and excerpts of their autobiographies are in my book called Two books called Telling Lives and the second one's called Changing Lives. But everyone and there are many more that I read that didn't, you know, couldn't find their way into the book. But every one of those um, women I learned something from. I learned, you know, much more about gender relations. I learned about 
what life was like in the Taisho and early Showa years and what life was like in the post-war years and learning more like about the, the lucky dragon incident and the, the bikini atoll and now it seems a colleague I know at Harvard I mean he's, he and his students are studying the whole bikini atoll story from the point of view of the islanders who got moved off of that island so they could test but of course the lucky dragon incident too and it's such a rich kind of Thing. And I think as historians, you know, we have to look back and find our little spot where you know, hopefully we dig in and when we dig in that hole takes us deep. I mean, that's what Taukere did. He takes you deep. And, and I think as a scholar, you want to be able to go deep. And as a teacher, you want to be able to go deep. One, uh, um, just a short uh, question about Taukere mm -hmm. um, because um, if I understand correctly, this book has been in the making for 30 years? No, more, more, than, <laughs> more than 30 years. Yeah, I, in a way. I mean, I, I started it as a dissertation project in so so 72 to 75. It's a, lo it's a long Yeah, and then so 40 yeah, something years. 25, 30, yeah, 40 some years. Yeah. Almost as long as he lived. I mean, as long as he lived, <laughs> more than his life. And as I was saying earlier, I couldn't have written this book back then, um, and the scholarship on things like modernity, on things like Schopenhauer, um, and uh, I think also like the world of the small journals and the literary critics. So there's a rich literature on all of that, um, which you kind of—it's helpful to have to then appreciate what you know. I saw here in Taukade, and it's too easy to you know read his a paragraph that he summarizes his take on Schopenhauer and say, okay, well, that's that, and I'm not going to go any deeper into Schopenhauer. And he liked Schopenhauer so what? Nobody else does, whatever. But so I wound up, you know, not only reading Schopenhauer in English translation, but then keeping my eye on, you know, the scholarship and finding that, you know, as I said earlier, when I started in the early 70s, Two or three, four books on Schopenhauer could be listed in a library catalog. Now it's got to be 40 or 50, and people are taking them seriously. I still don't think, it, I don't know about in Europe, but in the United States, probably most, there's very few philosophy departments where there would be like a course on Schopenhauer. He's likely to show up in a, you know, a survey course and, and probably not get the, uh, attention he deserves. But obviously, the, from this scholarship, there's a few people, like there's somebody at the University of Wisconsin who seems pretty serious, uh, Schopenhauer scholar, and, and people all over the world. Uh, so I feel like, you know, yeah, he's a unique case. I mean, everybody knows Kant, and everybody knows Plato, and, and Topolini talked a lot about them, but Schopenhauer doesn't get the credit. And uh, the Topolini says, well, he should, and now I'm saying the same thing. I think he should. And this is actually one of the things that I felt um, reading your book, um, that um, Rayon is not part of the, the pantheon, he's not one of the major intellectual figures of major Japan, uh, he's not a, not he's not like Fuzawa Yukichi, he's not on any of the uh, currency. <laughs> currency. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but I felt, reading your book, I felt uh, throughout the book this, this idea that he is an important thinker and we should 
um, read him. We should listen to what he has to say. Thank you. And I appreciate bringing that up. And again, that's another thing that was hard about choosing someone like Tao because he was a marginalized thinker. In fact, he was called a Wasurareta Shisoka by Ienaga, forgotten. And somewhat because his writings was were suppressed. We didn't really talk about that, but out of his eight volumes of criticism, four of them were banned. Um, and um, so, you know, the idea is so prominent that, um, you know, a person has to be influential to be worth studying. But that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, the, maybe the people who are pushed to one side and are ignored are the, are the more interesting people because they, te they teach you something about what maybe just a few people uh, thought about the times, but if they were really on the side that was right, then, um, you know, that's a, that's a better thing. And I remember uh, back in the day when I had finished my dissertation and I was you know, visiting campuses, being interviewed for jobs, I visited a college and I, one of the people there was a Harvard PhD and he wore the ascots and everything. And we were having dinner and wine. And he was going, well, do you think that Taukarayan, you know, has the gray matter, you know, to be, you know, a serious intellectual? And I felt like saying, you know, what a pompous attitude that is. You know, the point is, however large or small or whatever his brain is, he worked hard. He wrote every day. He read every day. Um, he told us a little bit about his style of work. And it's very, I suppose, very Japanese because after reading about something, and it was time to write when he was on like editing a journal. He had a deadline, so he would close up all the books. You know, a lot of people like to keep the books open. I do, you know, but he would close everything up. And it was either in his mind and he could handle it or it wasn't. And then that's how he, he did his work. Um, so I think this idea that you have to be widely appreciated in your time or you're not worth studying is, is really bogus. And in fact, we can learn more from the kind of people who were ignored. Uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, don't be afraid, I say to, I would say to young scholars, to uh, take on people who are not well known. In fact, that's our job is to make them better known. And that's why I really appreciated, uh, you know, coming across a show, Konishi's book called uh, uh, Anarchist Modernity, because uh, he wasn't afraid to say that, um, yeah, there was this community, he guessed Estimates about 6,000, you know, Meiji intellectuals who were not all on the same page, but they all shared a lot of common values. They were not, they were concerned about what was going on. They didn't think society was looking right. They didn't think, you know, the promise of modernity was going to really be all that people thought it was going to be. And some were socialists, some were communists, some were anarchists, some were Christians, some were pacifists, um, and you had people like Kinoshita Naue, who was a Christian, a pacifist, and a socialist all in one. And, you know, I don't think Kinoshita Naue has been that well studied. And, and Ishikawa Sanjiro was another, he was influenced by Christianity, but also influenced deeply by um, Edward Carpenter. And he went to England and hung out with Edward Carpenter for a while. Plus, he was in a long-term relationship with uh, Fukuda Hideko, who was older older than him so he was the young lover of a, of a woman who um, had been involved in uh, popular rights movement you know she was arrested for uh, 
going trying to go to Korea and start a revolution. She had a carrying a bomb on a ferry and she was sentenced to jail and only her sentence got commuted when the Meiji Constitution, you know, was instituted. But she came back and she, you know, she started a journal of global feminism and everything. So, you know, there were people like that and they've always interested me much more than studying, uh, you know, established writers or people who are, you know, businessmen or, or ministers of finance or whatever. Frankly, I, could care less about those people. They, they're boring to me. But people who lived on the edge, um, marginalized people, people who, you know, like Talcoray, and you know, as far as I can tell, he, he never really wore Western clothes. You know, all the pictures shown in kimono, and um, but it doesn't mean he was. You know, he said, "Don't think of me as a as a you know, as a throwback." You know, someone who's who's. Uh, you know, like hates being in the modern world because he did, but he just wanted people to be mindful of you know, what was there. And I love the fact that when he went to China and went to Shanghai, he realized that his worldview up to that time had been somewhat limited. He used the metaphor of the frog in the well. He was in a huge non-Western city with a mix of people and buildings and traffic and, and uh, he didn't hate that. He, you might think that someone interested in Taoism, he just want to live back in nature or something, but no, not so much. And Sho Konishi has done some work on, uh, I think his name is Ogawa Yusen, an anarchist um, uh, artist, printmaker, and, and stuff like that. He and Taoqueray met and were quite good friends, and they collaborated on a book together where. Um, Yusen did the drawings and talked it. was called the Yuzo Muzo, you know, language and silence. And then the Talkerian would write the short, almost poem like words, and then Yusen would write the, uh, do the images. It was very cool stuff. So they were kind of pushing the envelope. And those kind of people interest me much more than other kinds of people. Well, uh, Ronald, we have taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I still have one final question. Absolutely. Um, it's actually about the future. Uh, what's on the horizon for you? Mm -hmm. Are you working on a new project right now? Funny you should ask. I, I'm actually, I retired at the end of this semester, although I don't feel very retired because, <laughs> as I told you, I'm over here with a program. So anyway, though, yeah, I've decided to step back from teaching and um, maybe... Maybe my next project is to take this biography of Tao Kardeyu, uh and play around with a little bit and try my hand at some historical fiction. Uh, not going to limit it to his his years because I, I want to go broader and uh, not limit it to Japan, but to try to include China. So I've never written fiction before, and um, I probably would want to know a lot more. I want I've been to China. A little bit, but I, I think I should probably spend a little more time in China getting to appreciate, maybe follow some of the paths that Talbrain was on. So I might try my hand at, at that. Otherwise, I'll try to just be a uh, a person who lives a little bit holistically, harmoniously, be on my bike, uh, be in the gym exercising, and you know, I think I will always spend an hour or two every day studying Japanese, practicing writing my kanji, because, you know, 
we talk in, in America at liberal arts colleges about lifelong learning. Well, anyone who gets into Japanese studies has the opportunity, right? To do lifelong life, learning. Lifelong yes. learning. So uh, that, that's kind of my story. I'm 72 years old and um, I've had a career of about uh, 41 years of teaching. Uh, so it's time to move on and do other things. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Ronald. It's a um, pleasure. For everybody, uh, this was our conversation with Ronald Loftus uh, about his book, The Turn Against the Modern, The Critical Essays of Tao Kareyun, which was published by the Association for Asian Studies in 2017. Um, thank you again. And, um, well, Ronald, good luck with your plans for the future. Thank you very much, Ronald. And thank you for the conversation today. It was my pleasure, and I hope your listeners will run out and get my book on Taokurayan, but more importantly, just reflect on some of these things. It can't hurt you. Thank you.